Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As protests heat up in coal country, new research shows the people who live and work there pay a bitterly high price for America's huge appetite for coal. It seems like coal mining areas in Appalachia are America's sacrifice zone, that their lives are expendable so that other people somewhere else can have cheap electricity. Also, transport of delight, how not to feel guilty about riding in an SUV or airplane, and an epic poem about an American epic journey, the Lewis and Clark expedition. Buffalo, buffalo. 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 Herds and eyes all around me in the darkness. Buffalo in the dawn light breathing, whispering, I am the buffalo god. I am the buffalo god. Behold my kingdom. That and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Lead, mercury, caustic chemicals. These poisons make up part of the slurry from gold mining. Now, by a 6-3 to three vote, the U.S. Supreme Court has upheld a permit that allows a mine operation to dump its toxic tailings into the lower Slate Lake in Alaska's wilderness. At the same time, the high court said the Obama administration is free to revoke the permit, which was issued under rules adopted by the Bush administration. Tom Waldo is a lawyer for Earth Justice who argued against the mine at the Supreme Court. Hi, Tom. Hi, Steve. Tom, before we ask you about the details of the case, uh, what's special about Lower Slate Lake? Well, it's a remote, pristine Alaska lake. There's fish in it and wildlife surrounding it. But the most important thing about Lower Slate Lake is that it's, it's like many other water bodies. And if the Clean Water Act allows significant pollution of Lower Slate Lake, it can allow the same thing for water bodies elsewhere in the United States, too. What exactly did the Supreme Court uh, decide in this case? They ruled against you. They said, hey, uh, uh, the Bush administration uh, ticked all the boxes that were necessary to issue a permit uh, for the mine to put its leavings uh, in the lake, uh, describing them as fill. What was really decided in this case? Well, the Supreme Court upheld a permit issued by the Army Corps of Engineers that authorized the mining company to discharge 200,000 gallons per day of of toxic wastewater pollution from a gold ore processing mill. The effect of the discharge would be to kill all of the fish and other aquatic life in the lake. And over the 10-year life of the mine, the discharge would deposit 4.5 million tons of solids into the lake. And the Corps of Engineers did this even though EPA has had rules in place since 1975 that prohibit this exact kind of discharge. So in your view, then, the court made the wrong decision. How was it that the Army Corps was able to do what it did if, as you say, the law says the EPA should have blocked it? 
they did it by a ruse. They redefined the pollution as fill material. Now, fill material is usually understood to be sand or gravel or rocks that are deposited in water for some useful purpose, like to build a levee or a seawall or a bridge or maybe a building on wetlands. What they did during the Bush administration was they redefined fill material much more broadly so that it would encompass even uh, pollution from industrial manufacturing facilities if it contains a lot of solids that could deposit on the bottom of a water body. That's what they did here, and that's what the Supreme Court upheld. How consistent was this ruling with the intent of the Clean Water Act, do you think? It's not consistent at all. The intent of the Clean Water Act is to make waters fishable, swimmable, and drinkable again. The purpose of the act was to stop the practice of using lakes and rivers and streams as industrial waste dumps. But that's exactly what the Army Corps of Engineers authorized here. They authorized the mining company to use Lower Slate Lake as a waste dump. It's entirely contrary to the purposes of the Clean Water Act, and there's just a crying need for Congress and the administration to act to correct this problem. The mine deposits from Kensington could raise the lake bed there some 50 feet and eventually triple the lake size to 60 acres. How would this raise in water level change the lake's ecosystem? Well, it would change it into a much larger and shallower lake. The entire bottom of the lake would be filled up with mine tailings. Um, When they were going through the process of preparing these permits, they tested some sample mine tailings to see what effect they would have on the freshwater life that lives in the lake and found that it was highly toxic. So it will be a long and difficult process for this lake ever to recover if it is ever possible. Now, they're trying to solve that problem by requiring the mining company to deposit four inches of native soils at the bottom of the lake after mining is done in the hopes that by covering up those toxic tailings, it will enable the life the lake to recover. But there's certainly no guarantee that will be successful. And if it is, it is expected that it will take many decades for it to recover. You've lost at the Supreme Court, but you say the fight's not over. Oh, yeah. We, um, like I said, we're continuing to ask the Obama administration to fix the problem underlying this case through new regulations defining fill material. Um, we would like Congress to act on the Clean Water Protection Act. And in the meantime, uh, the administration has the authority to rescind the Kensington Mine Permit. EPA can veto that permit under its rules, and the Corps of Engineers can rescind that permit under its rules, and we hope the administration will do that. Tom Waldo is a lawyer for Earth Justice. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Sliding into a seat on a city bus, you may think you're doing your part to save the environment. But a new study suggests that this is not always the case. Riding public transit may not necessarily result in greater energy efficiency and cleaner air. 
To evaluate the energy use and air pollution of various types of transportation more accurately, UC Berkeley researcher Mikhail Chester says that you need to take into account the entire life cycle, including infrastructure and maintenance. Mikhail Chester is co-author of a recent study published in the journal Environmental Research Letters. The Berkeley team compared the energy and emissions of trains, buses, airplanes, and cars and found some unpredictable results. One of the biggest surprises was not on the energy and CO2 side, but on the criteria pollutant side. Sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide, um, particulate matter, ground-level ozone formation, uh, you know, asthma rates in children. You know, these are the things that c- contribute directly to human health impacts uh, and environmental impacts. And the most surprising impact was that for a lot of these emissions, the bulk of them are not occurring at the vehicle's tailpipe, but in these life cycle components. So maybe not so much the car or bus, but the making of the road. Maybe not so much the train in operation, but the making of that train, the construction of the train line. We have 3 million miles of roadways in the U.S., and what is the environmental impact of that? Not just from an energy and CO2 perspective, but from these criteria pollutants I mentioned before. We've done a lot to sort of improve the tailpipe, what's coming out of the tailpipe. But when you don't look at the tailpipe, when you look at all of these life cycle components, you find that often they're now the majority of the environmental burden. So for roadways, for example, there's a lot of particulate matter released uh, in the construction of roadways. When you construct a road, you have to mine aggregate for the asphalt. You need to transport and process that material. You need energy to process that material, and then you need to place the material. And all of these steps uh, produce particulate matter along the way, and that turns out to be very large. And the other major finding here is how much occupancy really affects things. So if I look at your research carefully, it seems to me that if I were driving a big honking SUV that, say, only got uh, 12 miles to the gallon, but I took three other people with me, I'd be better off than driving a stingy, say, uh, uh, Honda hybrid that got 35 miles to the gallon just myself. Right. And I think you should uh, put that if in italics, underline and bold, because that's the important word there. But yeah, that is correct. You know, this is, we should put it in context though. So SUVs are not being driven with three passengers in them. However, right, if you put three passengers in it and you compare it against to the uh, against the sedan with one passenger in it, it may be better off. I don't think this is saying you should go out and buy SUVs. Uh, this is saying, you know, if you can get three passengers in it, that you're better off than driving multiple sedans with one passenger in it. So, Mikhail, I'm looking at your study that you published, and you have a really interesting set of charts in here. And one of them shows that an urban bus off-peak is probably the most energy-intensive and greenhouse gas intensive way to go. It takes more than cars, even planes. You know, when you look at these transit modes, which are these sort of, you know, large vehicles that can carry many passengers, but during off-peak or, you know, sometime when they have very low occupancy, they look really bad. Um, You know, the same could be true for a train. So I I don't want to say the bus is always the worst. If you look at an aircraft with five passengers on it, it's probably the absolute worst. But you know, you can draw these sort of lines and say these public transit modes, when they're running with very low occupancy, uh, they do look bad. But when they're running with very high occupancy, they look fantastic. So I think this has a lot to say about policy and decision making and, you know, what we should be doing um, you know, potentially during the off peak 
trying to put more people on public transit in conjunction with reducing the energy and greenhouse gas intensity of these modes. So as a consumer, concerned consumer, worried about one's energy footprint, seems to me that uh, we should take solace when the bus is jammed. When you can't get a seat, that's a, that's a good thing for the environment? I would think so, yeah. And likewise, if the plane is packed and you're, you know, three or four of you to this row that was designed for children, again, this is more efficient. Well, it is more energy efficient, whether it's comfortably efficient or ergonomic, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Mikhail Chester is a researcher in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department at UC Berkeley. Coming up, today, coal supplies half of the electricity in America, but unless we can give it a good and cost-effective cleaning, its future may not be burning bright. It's not just the problem of climate change that's giving coal a black eye. New research has found that for residents in Appalachian mining country, the costs of the fuel far outweigh its benefits. One of the estimates translates into over 42 billion dollars as the human cost of coal mining in Appalachia. Some of the estimates are as high as over 80 billion dollars. The benefits of the coal economy measured by the, not only the direct jobs that it creates but the indirect jobs that, that ripple through the economy as well as the severance taxes that are paid by coal companies came to a little bit over 8 billion dollars a year. Counting up the true cost of the cheapest fuel. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Today, the cheapest, most common way to generate electricity in the U.S. is the burning of coal. But that poses health problems. And calorie for calorie, burning coal spews out three times as much of the greenhouse gas CO2 as the cleanest fossil fuels. And that has put coal under fire in the face of threatened climate disruption. The Obama administration recently revived FutureGen, a research project designed to show that a coal power plant can run cost-effectively without releasing CO2. And now there's a company that's becoming the first in the U.S. to retrofit an existing coal plant with carbon capture and storage. Reporter Ann Murray has the story. On a recent afternoon, trucks haul coal to a colossal storage pile at the Mountaineer Power Plant in New Haven, West Virginia. Each year, Mountaineer and 19 other plants owned by American Electric Power burn more than 75 million tons of coal to make electricity. Burning all that coal releases millions of tons of carbon dioxide. Mike Morris, American Electric Power's CEO, says his company started thinking about that environmental connection years ago. In the 1980s, 1990s, as we went through the Clean Air Act amendments, we all began to focus in on what might one day be a larger issue in the climate change uh, challenge. And that tells us that uh, we needed to be ready to address that issue, and we would like to think that we are. Morris believes a carbon emission policy is in the cards for the United States. He's betting AEP will reduce its carbon footprint with carbon capture and storage. 
His company's pilot project will start up this fall at the 29-year-old Mountaineer plant. It'll be the first time an operating coal-fired power plant will capture and bury CO2 emissions. Dozens of construction workers are now on site putting the pieces of the technology together. They've got a lot of steel on the ground, but there's still a lot more building left to do. Gary Spitznogel is AEP's carbon capture and storage expert. He says at the beginning stage, this technology is projected to capture about 100,000 tons of carbon. That's only 2% of Mountaineer's annual output of CO2. But Spitznogel says they plan to ramp up the capture process at a later date. To get a better view of the project, he heads to the roof of the plant's boiler building. He points down below to the construction. The predominant thing you see is a big round tower that's being built. That's where the absorption happens. Some of the plant's emissions will be diverted to this five-story high tower. A chilled ammonia-based solvent will absorb the carbon dioxide there. Then the solvent will be heated to dissolve the CO2 out of the emissions. Spitznogel predicts this process will be a lot more energy efficient than other chemical absorption systems. It's that stripping, the removal of CO2 from the solvent that takes so much energy in most processes. And this particular ammonia compound doesn't hold as tightly to the CO2, so it allows you to remove it with less heat. The CO2 will be compressed into a liquid, piped a short distance, and injected into a deep storage well. Back on the ground, Spitznogel opens a gate next to the wellheads. He says deep layers of porous rock will hold the CO2. Thousands of feet of dense shale above that will keep it in place. Nobody knows for sure if the gas will stay trapped permanently. Why are you guessing that this is going to work? Well, I wouldn't use the term guess. This is kind of an extrapolation from what's been done in the oil and gas industry for enhanced oil recovery. They actually inject CO2 and use it to push oil out of the ground. AEP and a partner have invested $100 million in this phase of the project. If it's successful, the company hopes to get government help with the $300 to $500 million needed to capture about 20% of Mountaineer's CO2. AEP's ultimate plan is to fully retrofit one of their plants and capture 90% of its carbon. At every stage, the company believes it will take 15 to 20% of the plant's power output to run the process. Energy analysts say the completed system could cost around a billion dollars. Even at that price, Mike Morris is convinced this carbon capture and storage technique will be cost-effective for his company and other existing coal-fired power plants. The whole concept of being able to duplicate this technology and install it elsewhere is part of what we're doing. Once it's demonstrated, others will come flying to the technology, and that's my point. Not every power company wants to make that leap. Some say that the technology is too expensive to perfect. Duke Energy, a major electricity provider, recently announced that it's betting on nuclear power instead of pursuing carbon capture and storage. American Electric Power and the Independent Electric Power Research Institute predict once their carbon capture system is fully operational, customers will pay about 10 cents a kilowatt hour. That's five cents more than the cost of electricity from traditional coal-fired plants. And it's three to four cents higher per kilowatt hour than nuclear-powered energy and subsidized wind generation. 
Many industry experts anticipate the expense of building and running carbon capture systems at a commercial capacity will delay widespread use of the technology for several decades. Some environmental groups object to the technology because of the harmful impacts of mining. Raina Ripple is the director of the Center for Coalfield Justice, a grassroots organization. This idea that carbon capture and sequestration is this silver bullet is just false. It doesn't address the whole coal cycle. It doesn't address the fly ash. It doesn't address the mining impacts. It's almost too little too late. Ripple deals with the impacts of mining every day. Today, she's in a neighborhood in southwestern Pennsylvania located above a longwall mine. Longwall mining operations remove huge panels of coal buried deep underground. That causes the land above the mined area to drop. Amy Erickson's house dropped six inches days after her property was undermined. She shows Ripple raw sewage in her yard. The septic tank is located in the corner of my house where the house dropped the most. Smelling this constantly is disgusting. Coalfield Justice's Ripple says she sees hundreds of people like Amy Erickson with mining damage to their homes, businesses, and water supplies. She believes investing in carbon capture and storage technologies will only slow down the transition to cleaner, low-impact energy sources. I just think that carbon capture and sequestration is, is the anti-vision. It will tie us to the past. As much as we wish that we could wave a magic wand and replace fossil fuels with so-called clean renewables, there is no such magic wand. Ed Rubin is a professor in Carnegie Mellon University's Department of Engineering and Public Policy. Rubin sees coal as a major player in the U.S. energy mix for decades. He isn't nearly as sure that the widespread use of carbon capture at coal-fired plants is at hand. He says that two things have to happen to push the technology. First, the entire process, carbon capture, transport of the CO2, and storage must be shown to work safely and effectively at a commercial scale. The second is public policy. Right now, there is no requirement for power plants, or anybody else for that matter, to reduce CO2 emissions. Some energy analysts predict it could take 10 to 20 years and cost billions to learn if carbon capture and storage is commercially viable. Currently, Congress and President Obama are in the process of moving legislation to curb CO2 emissions. American Electric Power's Mike Morris believes legislation will encourage carbon-limiting technologies, and he's on board. It is not inexpensive, but it is doable, and society, American society, needs to decide that that's the way they want to go. In the meantime, the federal stimulus package includes $2.4 billion for clean coal projects, and the Department of Energy has offered at least $6 billion in loan guarantees for existing coal-fired plants that use carbon capture and storage. Signs that the pieces of the carbon capture puzzle might be falling into place for companies like American Electric Power. For Living on Earth, I'm Ann Murray. But even if it proves to be economical to capture carbon, controversy still dogs coal. Campaigners, including actress Daryl Hannah and climate scientist James Hansen, have taken their protests to West Virginia's coal country and gotten arrested. Why? First, we believe that no child's health and safety are expendable for the expediency of a dirty energy source. First of all, to bring attention to the devastation, devastating effects of mountaintop removal and to, uh, to make a call for clean 
renewable, in, infinite energy resources, which we have available to us now. At the same time, some West Virginians who depend on coal for their livelihoods hollered at the protesters to go back home. They don't like coal, they need to leave our state. But new research from the University of West Virginia suggests those who live and work in mining areas might want to rethink their allegiance to coal. Michael Hendricks, a researcher in community medicine at West Virginia University, has just published a study finding that coal costs a lot more in human terms than it provides in jobs and income. We did an analysis that showed that the areas in Appalachia where coal mining takes place actually have the weakest economic uh, circumstances. They have the highest poverty levels, the highest unemployment levels, the lowest income levels. So we followed up that analysis by trying to come up with an an estimate of both the cost and the benefits of mining for the Appalachian region and concluded that the costs outweighed the benefits by uh, several factors. Professor Hendricks, now, as I understand it, uh, to calculate this, you, you didn't actually look at the costs they spent on health care or lost opportunities, but rather you use something what's known as the value of a statistical life, this particular standard. Tell me about that. Uh, the way that the value of statistical life, or VSL, is estimated is through, uh, I think, a pretty ingenious type of a study design where you ask people, suppose there was an illness that had a 1 in 10,000 chance of killing you. How much would you be willing to spend yourself to eliminate that risk? And let's say that people on average in in a given study say $600, which is a kind of a reasonable or a a typical estimate that people will give. Then 10,000 people together will spend $6 million to save one life. So it's a way to estimate what society itself values. And we used a range of those estimates and then looked at the number of excess deaths that occur every year in coal mining areas of Appalachia versus non-mining areas. 10,000 excess deaths. That's right. The years 1997 through 2005 translate to over 10,000 excess deaths every year. And we attribute that difference to higher poverty rates in mining areas and also to differences probably in environmental exposures and pollution from activities in the mining industry. And if you translate that into money, how much are you talking about? One of the estimates that I think is probably most reasonable to use uh, translates into over $42 billion as the human cost of coal mining in Appalachia. Some of the estimates are as high as over $80 billion. And how much in the same period of time was the coal economy itself? The benefits of the coal economy measured by not only the direct jobs that it creates, but the indirect jobs that that ripple through the economy, as well as the severance taxes that are paid by coal companies, came to a little bit over $8 billion a year, much lower than the the estimated costs. Can you describe uh, a couple of these communities? Um, Paint a picture for us. Well, the first image that comes to mind maybe is a town called Whitesville in Boone County, if you drive through the downtown of Whitesville, you'll see that there will be coal dust on the, the buildings themselves, on the uh, outdoor furniture, on the vehicles. You'll notice a lot of empty storefronts and empty streets and not a lot of business or economic activity taking place. I don't want to pick on one town, but that's the one that comes to mind. Um, I don't want to pick on the people that live there because they're wonderful. Now, this isn't a comfortable question to ask, but some would say, look, these communities are very poor. Those people might not pay 
$600 to avoid a 1 in 10,000 chance of dying. They don't have any money. They might not pay anything. And the bottom line being that, well, human life is maybe worth a lot less in Appalachia in these poor areas. Well, I would disagree with that on ethical and moral grounds, but um, some people who live there view that their lives are valued less than people who live somewhere else, and it, it's in a way it's kind of hard to argue with that. It seems like coal mining areas in Appalachia are, to use a phrase that's been used, America's sacrifice zone, that their lives are expendable so that other people somewhere else can have cheap electricity. I find that appalling. The federal government is going to put a lot of money into carbon capture and sequestration uh, from coal-fired power plants. How advisable do you think uh, that that program is in light of your research? I think it's one of the dumbest things that they've ever attempted to do. I don't think the evidence is very good that we can implement a scalable carbon capture and storage system that can really be a serious way to, to deal with uh, CO2 emissions. But even if we could, that addresses only how coal is burned. It doesn't say anything about how it's extracted, processed, or transported prior to burning. And uh, carbon capture and storage systems will do nothing to change the conditions in the coal mining areas of Appalachia. We have to realize as well that the estimates that come out from the U.S. Geological Survey are that uh, West Virginia will peak in its coal production in probably less than 20 years. So we really don't have any choice. We can sit around and do nothing and wait for that to happen, or we can begin now to plan and implement serious economic diversification programs. I think that should be a top priority for the, for the state and the nation and even the local community leaders. Michael Hendricks is an associate professor in the Department of Community Medicine at West Virginia University. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. White is not a color of camouflage, except in a land of snow and ice. And yet, for the snowy egret, a bird that flies south to escape winter, it is the only color, observes writer Mark Seth Lender. The snowy egret lands, the name and color of a substance she will never see. There, on the muddy bank, still as chalk her carved and ancient figure stands stilting. Like Nike, she leaps, sailing into the bright, wide-winged above the shallow water where she feeds, so white sunlight seems shadow. What could be the purpose of such brilliance, snow in summer? Perhaps in some prior life this most strident, most absolute of colors kept her safe in a far and frigid land, and all these amazing feathers are only an artifact of dim ice ages past. Or, in the brief season between her comings and goings, this is her temporary color, as polished and transparent as paper made of rice, except there is no other phase than white when Egret flies. There is fragility in all this. The bird, the salt marsh where she lands, even the turbulent sand. From the south, the assault comes by hurricane, each season earlier and more ferocious than the last. From the north, it is the melting, and where there is no flood, drought. There is no reprieve. As the brackish plain is silted out or altogether gives way, where will Snowy Egret go? How will she retreat from winter when winter itself is in retreat? When the sun pounds like the hammer to the anvil, all life is forged to the blow. The upper latitudes break away, the equator burns. 
North and north and north the southern creatures go, driven there by unfamiliar weathers. Life once rare becomes common, the common vanishes. Perhaps it is not camouflage, but survival of a more intense and personal kind which turns the egret white, reflecting not just light, but heat. Maybe she will be all right. What about us, I wonder? Mark Seth Lender writes the syndicated column Salt Marsh Diary. To see some of his photographs and find out more about his writings, go to our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, Lewis and Clark through the eyes of a lost lad and transformed into epic verse. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's a familiar scene played out on streets across America. Workers in recycling trucks grab colorful curbside bins stuffed with cans, bottles, and paper. Keeps me busy all day. This is a crucial leg of a round trip from consumer to manufacturer and back again to the consumer. These days, over 30% of household trash is recycled, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. But a funny thing has happened on the way to the reprocessing centers. The floundering global economy has trashed the market. Christine Parrish reports. The modern recycling movement began as a personal virtue, an earth-friendly civic duty. But today, it's a multi-billion dollar business. Jerry Powell is editor of Resource Recycling Magazine. Recycling is the most popular environmental movement ever. So when you have 70% of people in a community recycling, I think that the elected officials will try desperately to keep that program going. During the economic boom times of the past decade, recycling was a boon to local governments and to the recycling industry, which made big money grinding up recyclables into raw materials that are used to make thousands of items, from T-shirts and surfboards to living room carpets. Hey, Tim, how are you doing? Hey, kid, how are you? Great. Nice to see you, Timmy. Johnny Gold knows his way around the North Shore recycling plant in Salem, Massachusetts. His grandfather started the business in 1916 and sold it much later. But Johnny Gold stayed on. Today, he runs 13 paper recycling plants for the Newark Group, one of the top recycling companies in the nation. Hi, Joey. Oh, buddy, it's, it's a beautiful day. Gold walks through the loading door to the muddy back lot behind the recycling plant. It's been raining for days, and gray clouds threaten more showers. It is bad out here. But it's not the weather that troubles gold. Forklifts stack bales of crushed cardboard two stories high in the mud. We walk through a crooked alley past row after row of soggy cardboard. We have bales way down also. I have never seen the likes of this. It is horrible. Just last summer, the recycling business was booming. Used cardboard was going for a record price of $200 a ton. Now it's selling for less than $50. Out there in the yard is a product of today's 
recycling world in our industry. We have thousands of tons stored. And it's not just cardboard that's piling up. Gold has growing mountains of plastic and glass bottles. This thing is pretty simple. It's textbook economics, uh, supply and demand, and uh, uh, people aren't buying. People are are scared. Uh, If their jobs are in jeopardy, they're not going to buy extra products, and that's what's happened. Resource Recycling Magazine reports the market for metal is horrendously low, and paper is going nowhere fast. Editor Jerry Powell says when the global recession hit last fall, people not only stopped buying computers and flat-screen TVs, there was also little need for the boxes they came in. All of that growth was because of Chinese demand. And when the Chinese market so quickly dropped, you were seeing piles of material in California, and there's uh, several large Los Angeles processors who have rented uh, warehouse space and have filled it up with bales of material. Chinese manufacturers have recently started buying cardboard again, attracted by the bargain basement prices. So in places like California, which have many seaports, piles of recycled commodities are slowly being shipped out. But recycling is a regional business. Landlocked states pay a premium to truck recyclables to the West Coast. Do you know that presently it costs more money to drive a a truckload of recyclables across Los Angeles than it costs to put it on a ship in the Los Angeles Harbor and then unload it in Hong Kong? It's cheaper to go across the ocean than it is across the city. That has left cities and towns across the U.S. awash in a sea of recyclables. When prices for recycled goods were high, they could recycle trash into cash. Now with the demand so low, many municipalities have to pay to have it hauled away. The dynamics and the economics have changed based on the markets collapsing. Christine Beeling is a project engineer who works on recycling issues in New England for the Environmental Protection Agency. In economic downtimes, um, we don't generate as much garbage. So, you know, we don't generate as much garbage, we don't generate as much recycling. The trucks, you know, go down the streets with less material in them. So, you know, it really changes the whole dynamic and the whole cost structure. Industry insiders say the supply and demand for raw, recyclable commodities will even out this summer. But if it doesn't, communities will struggle to have their materials recycled. For some, it will be cheaper to simply toss them into landfills. Jerry Powell of Resource Recycling Magazine says dumping recyclables into landfills hasn't become a national problem yet. I'm much more concerned what will happen in six months if this deadbeat sort of uh, recycling market continues. Powell expects a recovery, but not without casualties. Several recycling companies around the country have gone bankrupt, as have some of the world's largest producers of newsprint and cardboard. Third-generation recycler Johnny Gold has weathered bad markets before, but nothing like this. Um, well, you, you need cash. You're starting every day on a negative, and by the end of the day, you're still in a negative. You can't get the prices up. It makes it extremely stressful. Um, every day, it is another fire that we're putting out. Still, as he stands in the lot behind the North Shore recycling plant, where bales of cardboard continue to grow into towers, Johnny Gold remains optimistic. Recycling goes in cycles, he says. We're just at the bottom of the curve. And uh, we'll get through it. I mean, you have to believe in this industry. I do. I think everybody's in it. You have to believe in our country. We've, we've uh, hit other bricks before. We'll get through this, but it's been tough, real tough. For Living on Earth, I'm Christine Parrish in Salem, Massachusetts.
You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. There you'll also find pictures and more information about our stories. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Fair set, windless, fine, and warm. Poet Campbell McGrath reading from his new epic, Shannon, a poem of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Clouds at dawn resembling raked embers now diminished, nor any wisp to be seen. Having never conceived a sky so grand as this, I wonder if the western ocean truly resembles the accounts Captain Lewis has given. Could it be larger still? That's the voice Campbell McGrath imagines for George Shannon, a teenager on Lewis and Clark's great trek of discovery, charting rivers and mountains and animals across what would become the western half of America. George Shannon is just a guy who I fell in love with, you know, in that big, grand, epic adventure with major heroic figures. George Shannon was kind of like a goofy kid along for the ride. He was the youngest of the guys uh, in the Lewis and Clark expedition. He was only a teenager, 18 years old, and he had the misfortune to get lost. Sent off one day to round up some stray horses, George Shannon managed to stay lost for 16 days on the wide prairie. And Campbell McGrath says what at first seems an exciting adventure to this teen soon becomes a struggle to survive. So after he manages to kill one deer, uh, he's out of luck. Um, They only had their kind of day's ration of uh, bullets with them. So he basically survives on pawpaws, plums, berries, currants, um, and slowly feels himself slipping towards starvation. Things may be tough, but uh, he rather sets himself some pretty high ambitions. Well, they're his ambitions, and also they're, uh, they're his father's ambition. His father's clearly an ambitious man. So he imagines his father uh, talking to him as he's speculating on, you know, politics and the republic. Well do I know what my father would respond to fancies such as these. Idleness of mind need not be wasted time, George, my boy, if taken up with suitable ambition. George, my boy, if politics be the topic, why not see fit to dream upon President Shannon? So there's a, and I, I don't suppose every, in other words, 18-year-old uh, frontiersman was imagining he might be president. It's the strange fate, though, that Shannon went on to have a very uh, notable political career, as did three of his younger brothers, all of these guys being kids who grew up in a log cabin in the frontier. Shannon was a congressperson in Kentucky. Then he ran for the United States Senate in Missouri. So, you know, there was something about this kind of wide open character of the early 19th century that often had crazy ambitions and yet often amazingly realized them. Throughout the story of George Shannon, Buffalo are... Well, they're kind of like these mythical creatures. Shannon is so anxious to see them. And out on the wild on his own, he finally does see them again and again. Big herds of buffalo. The Lewis and Clark expedition were actually really interested in finding buffalo, but they had never actually seen one. So Shannon, you know, really is eager. 
for the first day or two, he's like, where are they? But then before a few more days have passed, he's he's amazed that you know he could ever have wished to see a single buffalo when he's surrounded by tens of thousands. So, Campbell McGrath, I'd like you to read from where George Shannon describes the buffalo. What is going on in his mind uh, at this point when he describes the buffalo herd? This is day 14 or so. He's been alone for 14 days. He's very hungry. He's lonely. And he's kind of lost himself a little bit in the landscape. And it's like instead of Shannon discovering the country, the country is kind of discovering and colonizing him in this strange way. And he almost, um, you know, loses himself in in a trance to the buffalo herd. Animals in the darkness all around me. Huffing and lowing of the buffalo. Sound of their lungs steaming into the light. I am not alone in the darkness. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. Still dark, but not alone. The great herds pulsing all around me in the darkness. Snort and exhalation, stomp and low. Beards of saliva, tongue and forelock. Rustle in the grass of the buffalo gathering. Heavy stamp of hooves and bodies of the buffalo. Fur thick with burrs of brome and sedge grass. Hump rumble, herd wallow, gruff in the darkness. Smell of the buffalo strong on the river breeze. Black eyes wide as the western ocean. Great herds of the buffalo all around me. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. Herds and eyes all around me in the darkness. Buffalo in the dawn light breathing, whispering, I am the buffalo god. I am the buffalo god. Behold my kingdom. It is so strange that here this young man is nearly starving to death and the land is so abundant. Yeah. I guess you can only go so far on uh, handfuls of, you know, river grapes. But nonetheless, he had this endless kind of resource of intelligence and imagination and uh, enterprise and courage to endure what he did. And, you know, he, he, at one point he says, In a land of plenty, I travel hungry. In a country of herds, I wander alone. On a journey of discovery, I am the lost. You know, there is kind of something sad about both the innocence of of George Shannon and really of this this land unspoiled these vast buffalo herds that that we know are going to be gone in, in not too long after the Lewis and Clark expedition if you think about it absolutely true you know that's one of the things that is really interesting about reading those you know the first hand testaments of whether it's Lewis and Clark or William Bartram or the explorers back then late 18th century early 19th century is we all know where the story is headed in the longer run um, we all know that a vision of exploiting nature is where the country's going but so you can i think at that moment at least you can still kind of believe in you know the possibilities of cherishing the landscape and you recognize that both of these tendencies continue in american culture 
you know, the exploitative as well as the celebratory, and you have to kind of continue to root for the right one. So at the end, then he's is discovered by the expedition rather than discovering it. But at that point, really, he's he's given up. You know, Shannon thinks he's done for because when he gets back to the river, he sees, wow, they're not here. I really need to hurry to catch up with these guys. Of course, the irony is he's catching up to people who are actually behind him. So all the time he's racing upstream, he's getting further away from them. And eventually he kind of basically gives up and stops and just sits down by the river. And um, these are his final thoughts. I doubt not, but my countrymen will populate in numbers these fulsome plains. But what untold count of years and men, of decades and centuries, what numberless generations will it require, life by life and skeleton by skeleton, to claim this land from the buffalo? Who finds this body, be it known, my name is George Shannon, and I bequeath my remains to seed this land with American bones. Campbell, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to be here. Campbell McGrath is a poet and writer. He teaches at Florida International University, and his new book is called Shannon, a poem of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. On the next Living on Earth, how to face America's threats in the 21st century. We're no longer in a world in which we can respond to all crises with guns. We have to be able to respond to an unknowable range of threats in a world that's two-thirds salt water. And to me, that response is best done by the well-trained gals and guys of the Coast Guard. The unsung heroes of the federal military, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week at the Vancouver waterfront. Waves lap against a creaking wharf while the Seabus Ferry crosses Vancouver Harbor. Passengers shuttle between the city of North Vancouver and downtown. Barry Truax and Hildegard Westerkamp captured these sounds for the CD Soundscape Vancouver 1996. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreeskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young. With help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, Sammy Souza, and Dana Chisholm. Thanks this week to Erica Peterson and West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Our interns are Annie Glosser and Lisa Song. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. 
the Rockefeller Foundation, and its Campaign for American Workers. More at rockfound.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.